Okay, so we are in Acts chapter 11. The Gentiles are accepted in Jerusalem. Acts 11 verse 1 to 18. Let's uh, bring everybody up to date. From chapter 10, we see the Holy Spirit orchestrate His plan of including the Gentile world into the gospel community. Um, I think it was, a, it was a watershed moment. That's why the Holy Spirit fell in the same way in, in Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house as down in the streets of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. How the Holy Spirit does it, I think, is remarkable. He brings together Jew and Gentile with visions and trances and angels. If you ever doubt whether what you believe about God to be untrue, like if you, if you ever come into a position, you wonder, okay, was Joseph Smith maybe the real deal? Or, was, um, or is the um, Seventh-day Adventists, are they correct in what they believe? You know, it's very simple to, to test that. Ask God for a miraculous vision or a trance, okay? <laughs> and you will, you will know, all right? Otherwise, it's just simply not true. And yes, of course, we study the Bible, but I'm, think about where these guys were at. They didn't believe salvation was available to the Gentiles. God spoke from heaven with a vision and a trance and with an, with an angel. Okay, God can confirm truth His way miraculously if He wants to. Now, last week we saw Peter traveling to Caesarea. Let's just go back to the map quickly, um, where he's greeted by a worshiping Roman centurion at the door. So the last week he was over there in Caesarea. That's where the Roman centurion lived. So Peter arrives at the door and he preaches the gospel to the people inside. Uh, there were numerous people to come and hear what heaven has told them to say. And Peter preaches the gospel. And while he's preaching the gospel, the Spirit falls upon them and they start speaking in tongues and then they got baptized. We dealt with all of that last week. Keep in mind for a moment that for all of Jewish history, since the days of Abraham, it was understood that God does not accept uncircumcised people in His family. Circumcision was key. For Peter to come to the realization and acceptance of this new age or new era must have been tough for him to accept that. Um, but we said last week that Peter had the right character. His character was this. If God says it, it settles it. And God spoke to him. God gave him these visions, and so he accepted that. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is, or that it has always been this way, the circumcision, for thousands of years, um, if it's the truth, it's the truth, and if God settles, settles it, then it does. So it seems it, it, it's, it seems it was easy for Peter to accept, but the question tonight is, will the other Christians accept it? Will the people down in Jerusalem accept it? Will the guys who've been Jews their whole lives and have come to Christ, will they accept it? Um, that's the question for tonight. What happens when Peter moves from Caesarea and he goes down to Jerusalem? He goes back home and he walks into the city and he walks into his Jewish friends over there and he says to them, this, this is what happened. 
Um, what do you guys think? So, just some questions for us to think about um, tonight. A few questions. Number one, how do you respond to criticism? Criticism is a difficult thing to deal with. It's hard. I mean, I've been speaking for a long time. And every time you speak in a setting and you use your mouth, you open yourself up for criticism. Because you can say the wrong thing. You can have a fact wrong. You can have thought something through well. And so you've got to prepare yourself for criticism. And even after preaching for more than 15 years, I still find it tough sometimes to receive criticism. Even if it's constructive. It's still hard. And how should we, how should we deal with it? Um, it takes great maturity to handle it well. Secondly, how can we know who God accepts and who He rejects? How do we know? And we might not have the full answer for that tonight, but it's one of the topics I think this text deals with. Because these guys in Jerusalem had a battle. It's like, how are we going to accept these Gentiles? How are we going to accept them? If God accepts them, how are we going to accept them? And as you've heard me say many times before, America seems to be, and, and maybe just the human race, seems to be a very divisive people. We want to know who's in and who's out. Are you in this church or are you in that church? Are you in heaven or are you not? Are you black or are you white? It's all of these divisive issues. Are you blue or are you red? Right? It's like a highly divisive world that, that, that we live in. How do we know who God accepts? It's a very important question. Because I most certainly, as you've heard me say before, I don't want to reject the people who God accepts. I, I can reject people based on myself, but does God reject them? And Peter and these Jewish Christians, they had to deal with this. And then thirdly, are you generally skeptical or trusting of what people say happened between them and God? And how, how should we be? How should we be? Should we be more skeptical or more trusting? When people say, you know what, God said this to me, or I experienced this with God, do you, you know, where, where do you stand on that? Um, all right, let's get into the text. Just a, a quick thing. Is everybody okay? Awake? Yes. Thank you, brother. Micah, you're awake, bro. Sweet. I want you to remember every word I'm going to say now, okay? I'm questioning you after. No, I'm just joking. All right, let's go. To be honest with you, this isn't the, um, the coolest text for tonight. You know, some stories in Acts are really cool. This is one of, we just got to go through it, okay? So Acts 11 verse 1 8. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So Peter didn't have to tell them. They heard it. Word of mouth. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. He experiences, imagine this, he experiences this incredible event. With his own eyes, he experiences Acts chapter 2 again. The Spirit falls, speaking in tongues. God is there. He gets to Jerusalem to his buddies, who was there with him in Acts chapter 2, and they're like, dude, are you crazy? You went into the house with these guys. You sat and ate with them. He's like, oh my goodness, I just experienced something incredible. You're gonna, can you understand the task that was ahead of him? How is he going to prove it was legit? That's the question. 
So they heard the news. The Gentiles got baptized. And this is a, here's a question. Why did they turn to criticism upon hearing good news? Why do they, why aren't they like, that's incredible. The Gentiles have been converted. Why is their first instinct criticize Peter? It's because of sectarianism. Sectarianism is in all of us to some extent. We want to be, even from school, even from a young age, you know, you want to be in the winning team. Or you want to be in the cool group. We, we have got a group or a tribal mentality. It's like, we are right, they must be wrong. We are good, they must be bad. That's exactly the same thing. And it's a worldly mentality that we have to deal with very carefully. It's very hard to unpack. But they struggled with this. They, the, the Gentiles were outsiders. They were not in the inside group. And now suddenly they're in the inside group. But it must be fake. They can't be in the inside group. It must be fake. Let's criticize Peter. It must be wrong. It cannot be. We can't accept those guys. So we know why they felt, oh, how they felt about this news. You know, sometimes I type stuff and I can't even read what I'm saying here myself. Um, so Peter arrived, and the Greek word therefore criticized is diakrino, which means they greeted him with a hostile spirit. They were discriminating against him, judging him, disputing him, hesitating about him, so they're like hesitant, or doubting him, and as the NIV says, criticizing him. It wasn't a good thing. It wasn't like, hey brother, let's talk about it. It was like, how dare you? How could you? We don't trust you. What's going on here? Now here's something cool. You guys know the, um, the, the uh, Catholics say, Peter was the first pope. Now think about this, if you think that's true. If Peter was the first pope, now what do we know about the pope? He lives in Rome. Okay, Peter did not live in Rome. But apparently, sorry? He's infallible. What he says goes, right? So, so he, if he says this is how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be. It's like God speaking through this guy. If Peter was the first pope, you think they would have opposed him and criticized him? They would not. They treated Peter just like what he was, a man. An apostle, yes, that walked with Jesus, but a man. They took him on. They didn't just believe what he said. Okay, well, if you say so, then it is so. No, they criticized him. This is one of the biggest evidences that it's bollocks to say that Peter was the first pope. They took him on. Where's the evidence? You claim this. Okay, show us. Do you think the Catholic Church would ever say that to the Pope? No, they won't. They'll just say, okay, whatever you say, bud. So, good evidence here. Uh, pope is a load of bollocks. Uh, they have nothing to say about the Gentiles who had come to faith. There's not even a hint of saying, well, this is incredible. If it's true, that's great. Now they take Peter on. They look at the schism. They focus on Peter eating with the uncircumcised. Peter ate food with people who were unapproved by God. Woo! What? Unapproved by God. Classic, classic sectarianism. Reluctance to accept others based on your own perception of God's expectations. We can expect people to feel uneasy when something new happens. It's natural. I think sometimes some of us feel like that, especially with these new South Africans here. 
you guys doing, man? Why are you saying let's do that? It's natural to feel that way, to feel a sense of reluctance. Is this from God? Is it not? It falls outside of our tradition. It falls outside of what we used to. So we feel uncomfortable with it. And it's fine to feel uncomfortable. But you've got to make sure that that comfort, discomfort is based in tradition and not in doctrine. And to say, well, um, I feel uncomfortable because God isn't happy with us. You'll have, to, you'll have to be able to prove that. So this thing is much more intense than the small things that we deal with in a small church. But for them, it's thousands of years, right, of, of circumcision. All right, so they criticize him. Now, let's see how Peter deals with this. What, is, what does he say? So he starts. From the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. Uh, 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 oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So God gave them the same gift He gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Um, Peter begins to uh, explain his actions. And we see here the best way. To explain ourselves when someone criticizes us or lays judgments against us is to do what? Speak just the truth. Speak the truth. The truth fears no questions. That's why criticism shouldn't cause the end of us. If you speak the truth. Maybe you made a mistake. You say, well, the truth is I was lazy and I did make a mistake. You redeemed. Or maybe the truth is you said something that was, was, was hard to uh, accept. And then just and somebody criticizes you because of saying that. And just say, well, it, it was just the truth. I, I, I cannot say it any other way. But either way, the truth will redeem you and give you safety. Whenever you face criticism. Oh, verse 8. Verse 8. Uh, Surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean have entered my mouth. Peter is reluctant too. Do you see that? He's also struggling to understand this vision that comes from heaven. 
But he's pretty bold because he's responding to God. He says, whoa, I've never eaten like this. Um, 40 years old, however he was, I suspect around there, his whole life he hasn't eaten bacon. And now God says to him, go enjoy yourself. Go chow some pork. Um, that's a pretty good argument to make against God. I think he had quite a, a claim against God there. Verse 9, um, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The angel rebukes Peter. So Peter responds, but the angel rebukes him. God made it clean. clean. Who are you to claim otherwise? God decides what's clean and what is not. God decides what is right and what is not. God decides who is saved and who is not. God decides whom He accepts and whom He doesn't. There's certain spaces where we can't decide for God what He accepts and what He doesn't accept. That's the message I get from this angel in heaven. Peter, you think it's not clean. I'm telling you, God says it's clean. And it's been hard for me working with people, working with people from different spaces in the world, from different um, backgrounds, to come to the realization that there's a point where I cannot decide if this person has been accepted by God or not. I cannot make that judgment. I see the fruit, but at the end of the day, I do not have, I, I, my paycheck doesn't allow for me to decide if this person is going to heaven or not. It's above my pay grade, right? And then from verse 4 to 10, um, Peter is only talking about his own trance experience. First-hand experience. Now, if somebody comes to you and says, well, he had this vision coming down from heaven and blah, 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 so all that, will you believe him? Has anybody ever experienced that, by the way? Somebody come to tell you they had this vision? Yeah? Yeah? Oh, is it? Oh, is it? <laughs> it happens a lot, you say. Oh, is it? Really? Okay. Well, then this is, will be a good lesson for you. At least it will be stimulating for you tonight. What, what, what is interesting for me here is that, to be honest with you, when somebody brings a vision to me like that, I'm like, I don't believe what you're saying. Isn't that our first instinct? It's like, yeah, I don't know if that comes from God. Well, God told me this. And to be honest with you, I've had dreams. But my dreams are not like this. I, I like have a dream like somebody needs help, for example. And I don't necessarily believe that that came straight, straight from heaven. It could be. But it's sort of, I spoke to the person in the week, and I know they're struggling, and I didn't think further about it during the week, but I go sleep, and then my subconscious mind is activated and reminds me of that conversation I had, and then I dream about that person. So I think there's a psychological aspect to it. Um, but we've got to be careful um, of, about that. So up to this point, I would hesitate to believe Peter. Yeah, you had a vision. Okay, he had some credibility. He walked with Jesus. He preached the first gospel sermon. Maybe I would believe him more. Um, otherwise, I'll just think if, 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 if Michael comes to me you know, today and he said that he, um, he dreamt he was going to get married in the next month or whatever, then I would, and, and he, he got, that vision came from heaven, <laughs> I'd probably not believe him. I'd say that's from La La Land, bro. Unless he asked for a number, that would be a different story. All right. Now, the, now from verse 11 to 14, the story changes a bit. Now there's evidence coming in to back it up. 
Do you see that? He says, well, while I was in this trance, three men arrived. Something else was busy happening. This wasn't just a vision between him and God. There were other guys that came and knocked on the door, that came all the way from Caesarea. Oh my goodness, and their boss had a vision. You see, now there's external evidence that collaborates the dream. You get what I'm saying? Which is pretty cool. The evidence starts coming in. There are other players, there are other witnesses that can corroborate what happened. There was another guy when an angel appeared to him. Now the story is becoming legitimate because it's confirmed by a total other person. And Peter, he says they had six brothers with him, six witnesses that can testify to this as well, confirm the story. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as He had come on us at the beginning. And so Peter can say, and then there was an event. They experienced the same thing as we did in the beginning. We saw with our own eyes, not just one person, multiple people, how the Spirit fell on them just like us. And just like we couldn't debate with God in Acts chapter 2, I couldn't debate with God in the house of Cornelius. Now these guys who are listening to Peter saying these things, I'm sure that they can resonate with that. Oh, we've been here before. We know what it was there in the street in, in Acts chapter 2. We know what that was like. That was real. And Peter, you were there and you say it's the same thing. Well, now the story is, is, is starting to make sense. Verse 16, he says, um, And then I remembered what the Lord had said. And he quotes the scripture. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he linked his experience with the text, with the Word of God. Well, probably it wasn't text, but we understand it as text, right? Our experience was aligned with what Jesus said. Jesus said He would do the baptizing. So it wasn't me who accepted them or said that they are saved. It was Jesus Christ Himself. And the guys believed him. We'll read the final verse in just a moment's time. Not because he made up some story, but because he had a backed up story. If you have a story that you claim comes from God, have it backed up. I'll be honest with you. There's been an individual in this church that came to me and said there was a vision. A few visions about this church. One of the visions was the whole floor of the church splitting open and water gushing out from the earth straight through the roof, which symbolizes the, the Word of God that's going to penetrate this community from this church. That was her, this individual story. Um, great story. I like it. But let's collaborate it with the reality. So now, People show, Peter shows us a way of testing what key, people claim to be from God. And this is what I picked up. I, put it, I try to put it into three. First of all, there was inner revelation. Peter had an inner experience. He had a vision in a trance, and the Holy Spirit spoke to him inside. But that could be just his voice. So we can't just believe what he says, Right? Yes, he was an apostle and a trustworthy source, but still the other Jews questioned him. Okay, so there's an inner revelation. That's fine, okay? But that inner revelation needs an outer confirmation. 
Someone else had a complementary vision. Physical people reacted to it, and there were at least six physical witnesses that they trusted. And remember, there were addresses and people's names mentioned. My brother DeMolt, if your um, Mormon uh, friends come, ask them for the details. Outer confirmation. Give me addresses, places, times, and individuals, other individuals who can collaborate what you say and you never met them with their names. Deal. <laughs> All right. Lastly, scriptural concurrence. If Jesus said, says it, then it is true and correct. Then it's legit. When the Bible does not contradict the issue, then it must be true. So it doesn't matter what vision you bring to me. If it contradicts the Bible, boom, I can kick it out. One time. Done. Um, that is why it's pretty clear what Peter says here. I remembered what Jesus said. Always keep that in your mind. When people come and they say, well, this is what, what was said to me. This is what, no, okay, well, what did Jesus say? Let's compare it with what Jesus said. Well, I had a vision from heaven that I must marry this man. I'm a man, but I must marry this man. And then I'll love. There came a white blanket down from heaven. And there was a beautiful man. And I saw the man and, and God said, go and kiss that man. That's the vision from heaven. Therefore, my homosexuality is 100% with God. You've got to confirm that, collaborate that with Scripture, okay, which always overrides your own experiences. Verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I think Peter had illustrated neatly to them, look, this is legit. This is from heaven. They were satisfied with the evidence. But then they say something intriguing there. The text says something intriguing. And I don't know if that caught your eye there. It says, to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. What does that mean? Does God give people permission to repent? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? God grants repentance. What do you mean? So some people He doesn't grant repentance? So you can't repent? And that sounds very Calvinistic. It immediately reminded me of this text. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. There it is again. It's clear in both instances that repentance is a gift from God. How do we make sense of that? Who is 100% confident they know what that means? This is something to battle with. God allows it to happen. How do I make sense of it? Well, this is how I make sense of it. Currently, at this point in my life. I think 
God is involved in opening our people's eyes to truth. I think God is involved in the process. God orchestrates the conversion process. Think with me. Think for me with the moment. If Cornelius had never had an angel come to visit him in his dream, and Peter never had a trance and vision, would the Gentiles have come to repentance by themselves? I hope that doesn't fly over your head. Go think about it. Very deep. It doesn't seem like it. God planted the vision. God sent the angel. Heaven initiated it. But I think, I think it doesn't leave the individual totally innocent. It doesn't leave Cornelius totally... I believe Cornelius was seeking God. So I think God works like this. It's like... When a person is lost and broken or they're looking for God, God knows that and he initiates the contact. Maybe that's what it means when the text says God grants you repentance. God grants you this opportunity. You're looking for it, therefore I'll give it to you. I don't know. I think this, I personally think there's truth to this and it has honestly humbled me here in Sweet Home, especially. I can stand on my head. I've realized this. I can stand on my head. If God doesn't work inside people, nothing can be done. He is the one granting repentance and heart change. And to be honest with you, when I arrived here, I thought I could lead people to Christ. I'm the guy that can do that. I can talk people into it. I've been humbled. Yo, if God doesn't help, if God is not involved, if God doesn't change hearts, I don't know. I can sow seed, but goodness, I, I don't know. Some people, as you know, so I've, I've met people, I can't even have a conversation with them, a rational one. Never mind explain to them. Some people, and, and this, this is shocking for me, I, I, some people can't read. I've met people who can't read their Bibles. They never finish school. I've met people here that never read their Bibles. Never mind trying to teach them. Hey, why don't you go home tonight? Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Oh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> okay. So if, if you get the battle, I've realized my fingers are cut off in many ways as an evangelist. I've got to do more praying and ask God to help people in their hearts to, to turn to Him. And then God can do His miraculous work. So, three final thoughts from me. The best way to respond to criticism is with the truth. If the critique is true, own it. If it is false, prove it. Your friend is the truth. Always, always, always. Number two, two ways to identify true disciples. Number one, they do what Jesus says. Their actions are aligned with, the, with, with, uh, with Jesus, and they agree with the Word of God. They don't debate it. You cannot trust the spirituality of someone who doesn't align their lives with what the Scripture says, and you cannot align, um, you cannot trust the spirituality of someone who debates whether what the Scripture says 
can be trusted or not. And lastly, it seems like it is, a, a, it is good to have a healthy suspicion of people's stories. Even the Apostle Peter was questioned about his vision. I think that suspicion needs to be healthy. And we shouldn't just cut people off, but we should say, okay, let's compare that to what Scripture says. There's so many lies out there that people blurt out. All right.